Welcome to Tramlines, a podcast from Agri. I'm your host, Tony Smith, putting your questions to the experts. In this episode, I'm talking about bees and pollinators with Marek Novakowski, who is an ecologist and wildlife expert and consultant. We'll be looking into the importance of bees and pollinators for growers and some of the steps that can be taken to increase biodiversity on the farm. Good morning, Marek. Morning, Tony. So to start with, tell us a bit about the different bees and other important pollinators. Um, yes, I mean, a good place to start. A lot of people don't realise that we've actually got four types of bee. Uh, let's start with the honeybee. There is only one um, bee in that group, Apis mellifera, um, and it's the only one that makes honey. So if you want honey, that, that that's your boy. Nothing else does it. Uh, then we move to the bumblebees, the big fat sort of woolly chaps um that that everybody sees flying about um then we move i suppose um there are about 23 24 bumblebees in the group then we move to the solitary bees and these are the sort of the unsung heroes in 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 uh, many opinions certainly in mine um we can split those into the mining bees that, that make nests by digging holes in the ground or the cavity bees that use existing cavities. Now, the interesting thing about the solitary bee group is that they transport dry pollen, and we'll come back to that in a minute. And the last group, um, if we're being absolutely fair, are the cuckoo bees <laughs> that serve no real function in, in this, well, no environmental function. And they're rather like the, the bird, the cuckoo, in the sense that the female um, manages to enter uh, and mimic other bees and uh, lay eggs in there and then she pushes off and goes whatever it is back down to the pub or whatever and uh, leaves somebody else to raise the kids um but the bit that that i find absolutely fascinating is the solitary bees transport dry pollen so i suppose if we're looking at different types of bee um it says he slightly flippantly um do you want honey or do you want pollination if you want honey it's the honey bee What's it like as a pollinator? Well, it's, it, it's not absolutely um, the best there is because it collects pollen, moistens it um, with a bit of spit and a bit of nectar, rolls it into a ball, sticks it in what they call a pollen basket on its hind legs and heads for home. And this turns out to be food for the queen and the larvae. Um, and the only effective pollination the honeybee produces is any loose dry pollen that it might have on its body. Now, when you get to the solitary bees, these transport dry pollen, they have a completely different life cycle. They don't, uh, they can't cope with uh, wet or moistened pollen. So their whole body becomes like a collecting brush. So if you're looking at bee for bee, the solitary bees are the pollinators par excellence. Sure, so that makes perfect sense. So whilst we're talking about bees um, and those different types of bees, what about the other pollinators, other insects? Are there other insects which actually play a really important part when it comes to this pollination process? Yes, there are. I mean, it, it, again, um, this is the great debate. What, what constitutes a pollinator? Um, and some people, and it's certainly a view I support, a pollinator is something that by design transports pollen. Um, by that, I mean, you could have a pollen beetle 
um, and it's actually feeding on the flower. It, it's, it has no interest in collecting pollen as such. Um, it might transport a bit of pollen from one flower to the next, but it's, it's not designed to move pollen. Um, butterflies are the same. Butterflies are after nectar. If they get a bit of pollen on them, it might be by accident rather than by design. So there are certainly insects that are good at transporting pollen. There are other ones that are less good or, or, or do it by accident. It's not their primary function. Bees sit at the top of the pollinate or, or pollen transport um, tree, if you like. Um, but there's a whole host of other insects. You've got hoverflies, um, you, you, you've got lacewings, you've got this whole army that constitutes a value provided by a whole suite of insects when it comes to pollination. Right, well, that, uh, that makes sense. Um, talking about where all of these bees and pollinators live, um, there's a whole raft of articles, actually, that can be easily found. And I, I found one which talked about the English flowering meadows. Uh, this was <laughs> quoted by Jeremy Coles of the BBC, um, which quoted that these meadows have declined by 97% since the 1930s. So why has that decline happened? Um, ask 10 people, get 10 answers. Um, from my point of view, being in agriculture and loving wildlife, what, what I've seen, not from the outset, I hasten to add, but what I've seen is an intensification. I've seen different demands placed on farmers by, if you like, government and the general public where the farmer has had to specialize, he's had to intensify his operation because he's chasing a, if you like, shrinking margin. Um, many years ago, uh, when agriculture, if you like, was, was perhaps a little more relaxed, there were one or two untidy corners um, that, that, that provided opportunities for flowers. The other thing that happened, um, Certainly, I saw the tail end of it in the 70s when I started agriculture, the loss of the mixed farm. Um, if you go back even further than that, all the tractors ate hay because they were called horses. So you needed a lot of grass. But the old hay meadow wasn't a great producer um, in, in, in yield of hay. So uh, pesticides took their toll, intensification took their toll. In fact, the decline of, if you like, the undersown spring barley, which every mixed farmer had, um, this was a farming system that just disappeared over time. Um, people used to plow with oxen, now they plow with tractors. It's all, it's all called change, it's all called advancement. Um, but one of the casualties became this 97, 98% of the wildflower meadows, which if we look at biodiversity as a whole, was an immeasurable tragedy. We lost this huge um, sink of biodiversity. Sure. So as you said, a, a lot of change uh, in farming. But today we're talking about bees and pollinators. We're talking about the change in these flowering meadows. Why should we be so concerned? Why should we be actually talking about bees and pollinators today? Why are they so important? What has happened over time is that the loss of this biodiversity weakens the whole farming system. Um, 
farmers, uh, not necessarily farmers, human beings sit on the planet as part of a very complex web. Um, I don't want to sound too evangelical, but what's happening now is, uh, and people are waking up to this fact, is that we are losing differentness, we're losing biodiversity. So what's happening, if, if you lose diversity, you lose resilience, you lose stability. Um, even a farmer that, that, that perhaps doesn't have crops that need pollination, he needs to do his bit. Otherwise, he, if you like, is a gap in this great big jigsaw picture. Um, somebody else is going to have to do a hell of a lot more if he does nothing. Um, I've often felt and spoken to farmers, if every farmer did a little bit of biodiversity, then nobody would have to do a lot. But the importance of maintaining the diversity in all aspects is really what keeps, if you like, us human beings functioning. Um, I remember talking to uh, an ologist many years ago, and he said, I asked him pretty much the same question, um, because like many people, I struggle with the idea of, of what's the importance, what's the value of biodiversity, what, why have we lost differentness, does it matter? And he said to me, Marek, you're in an aeroplane on holiday, um, and you're rather bored, so you start pulling the rivets out of the aeroplane. He said, there will be one rivet too many that you pull out. So my advice to you is don't start pulling them out at all. And, and, and that brought the whole thing very much in, in, into, uh, into focus for me. Um, if we don't know which are the most important bits, don't start throwing bits away uh, because you might throw, yeah, I think the word is the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, I, I love the way you uh, you throw in your little stories and anecdotes. It somehow it, it makes it easy for me to understand. I'm sure for other listeners as well. Um, you you talked about the different crops, the various crops, and we've probably got listeners growing anything from hops and fruit to your arable farmers, potatoes, maize. It could be any crop. So, to w which crops need pollination more than others? It might be easier to say which don't. I mean, obviously the cereals don't. Um, the ones that are that are very dependent uh, on pollination would be soft and top fruit, some of the veg crops, some of the more valuable crops, things like all seed rape, um, pollinators provide a contribution, but it's also wind pollinated. Um, so pollination for certain crops is absolutely vital. And this is normally done by people bringing in honeybees, not because they're the best pollinators, but, but um, they've got a thing called a hive. There's thousands of them. You can move them around. They also produce a very valuable byproduct. So honeybees have become, if you like, a flying stripy farm animal, a commodity that you can trade. The bit that I enjoy is the solitary bees. You can't farm them. You can't move them around. They are totally dependent on us creating the right habitats for them to function. So... Let, let's talk about those habitats. I mean, how, how can growers enhance the habitats on their land for those solitary bees and other pollinators? Um, where do they start? What flowers have you got? Where are they? Um, what I'm thinking of is that the majority of flowers that you buy, um, and I wrote a bit about this in, in the book that I wrote three or four years ago, if you look at the flowers that you can obtain commercially, they don't start kicking in. They don't start flowering till late May, early June. And if a bee comes out in mid-March, as many do, 
What the hell is it going to do between March and June? Well, a hell of a lot of them die. The flowers that fill this hungry gap are often hedgerow trees. Um, and if you like the flowers for free, the flowers that haven't been planted, um, red and white dead nettle, that sort of thing. So going around either with the farmer or, or if you like setting him some homework and then meeting him when he's got the time, the best place to start is to record what you've got, when you've got it, and I'm referring to pollinators, and where you've got it. Um, and then when you've got that, it's a, says he glibly, it's a relatively simple thing to plug the gaps. Um, the chap says, well, I, I, I've spent the whole of March and April and I haven't, I haven't found a single hedge with a flowering tree in, right? So we've got to plug that gap. Um, I don't have any red uh, or white dead nettle then um, I'm not saying you can buy and plant them, but you've got to start leaving one or two gaps in places on the farm. Um, because unless these insects that come out in March can be fed until the flowers you sow kick in, um, then we're missing the opportunity of fill filling the hungry gap. So perhaps we spend a year recording what the farmer's got, uh, where he's got it, and then identifying, and, and at all times, I think one of the things that, that um, we need to be very good at is managing the farmer's expectations. Um, you know, at the end of two years, I want to be able open to the public and have a wildlife park. Well, <laughs> it's very unlikely that's going to happen. What you've got to look at is where the gaps are, certainly relating to insects, it's pollination, but then the insects become for, for food for the birds. So the whole thing starts to, going back to what we said before, um, we start to build this interactive web where everything is stitched together. Um, if there's a break in the chain, then the whole system starts to become a little bit strained and, and, and break up. Um, I think the simplest thing from a farmer's point of view is if he can provide a home for wildlife, food for wildlife, and then there's enough wildlife so that you get breeding, home food and mate, I call it. Um, and you can identify reasonable gaps to plug. Um, that then the, the results not only are quite dramatic, but they're very speedy as well. We did an experiment, uh, we, that's the Center for Ecology and Hydrology. Um, and I was involved where we took uh, two and a half thousand acres on a heavy land farm. We took about 8% of the land out and created a variety of habitats. The farm ended up making more money um, and the wildlife just went sort of ballistic because what we did is we plugged in the right habitats in the right places and we managed them. It's more about quality rather than quantity. Yeah, and you mentioned something really interesting which made sense to me when we, we spoke um, before today. And you talked about there being no more than 500 metres in any direction where a pollinator can get its food. I think, uh, I think you drew the analogy towards a petrol station. Tell me, tell, say that again, because it made really good sense to me. I suppose my job is to take science, um, and I'm certainly not a scientist, uh, to take science and then turn it into a deliverable so that, that, that farmers can take on board some very simple messages. They haven't got all day to listen. Um, so it, it's good to provide farmers, I think, with hooks. Um, some of the scientists that I work with uh, get a little bit alarmed when I sort of try and condense seven years of research into a two-minute presentation. 
But if you said even the smallest of solitary bees or, or, or one of the smallest of the solitary bees could fly 250, 300, um, I suppose 500 is a nice round figure, um, meters from home, and you scribed a circle, um, that would be about 20 hectares. And five of those circles would be a square kilometer. So in each one of those circles, in each one of those 20 hectares, if there was even the smallest quantity of food, the smallest of the solitaries, and many fly over 500 meters, but we'll deal with the smallest. If we had this, if you like, layout looking at this square kilometer, um, even the smallest of solitaries could get to a petrol station. Um, the other way of looking at it is I've got a, a 200 hectare farm. I'm going to put 20 hectares of pollen and nectar in the top right hand corner of the farm. Well, if I'm a creepy crawly living in the bottom left hand corner, I ain't, I'm never going to get to the petrol station. So what you're looking at for the farmers that, that want to do it right, and there's the science to prove it. And we have pushed, if you like, DEFRA um, for many, many years on this. There ought to be a higher payment for the correct habitat placement such that the whole farm has a much greater spread of habitats. Therefore, as we said, uh, even the smallest of insects can fly this three to 500 metres and get to a petrol station. Sure. So if you had a key message for growers that are listening today, what would it be? Um, there are increasing environmental pressures, both from government and the public. My message to farmers would be, accept the fact that environmental opportunities are on the increase and we are going to be encouraged um, with a degree of flexibility um, to engage with these environmental opportunities. Find the lowest yielding areas on the farm, find the areas that are difficult to farm, look at the right habitats, um, best with a bit of help. It's something I spend a lot of time doing and then engage with these habitats. After all, um, if you're growing all seed rape or you're growing wildflowers, whatever, they're all crops. Um, there is a frustration where the book says you must follow page seven, eight, nine, ten. So farmers lose a degree of flexibility. OK, so growers are just about to start. They're really busy. Uh, spring season uh, with all the field work that needs to be done what one thing can they take away from today and start doing that's going to make a difference um, what you need to do at a quieter more relaxed moment on the farm certainly not now because you'd be top dressing t1 fertilizer uh, t1 fungicides etc but at some point understand what you should have go out and find what you've got and then look for help and advice to plug the gaps that clearly are the bits that are missing. Well, Marit, that is really valuable advice, I'm sure, for um, all of our listeners and some great takeaway messages for us all. That's it for this podcast, but do tune in again as we meet the experts throughout the season, exploring the many immediate and longer-term questions for growers and farmers in the UK. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask the experts, email info at agri.co.uk. See you next time.